This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good late afternoon and early evening, dear listeners. This is Teachers Talk Radio. It is 5 p.m. and 13 minutes past on Sunday, the 12th of November, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is the Olympic Games 2024 in Paris. This Welcome. is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good late afternoon and early evening, fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 54th radio show as your hostess, and I'm delighted to share this experience in your lovely company. But first, I have to introduce myself for any new potential listener. I am Maud, a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have been living in the United Kingdom since August 2008, and I am a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London where I teach languages, Spanish and French. I also have experience as a kindergarten teacher in the charity sector. You can follow me on Twitter slash X and my name is at prof prof mfl all views are my own and you're more than welcome to come and contact me via social media or via the chat function today i would like to focus on a topic that is gonna be relevant in a few months and that is the olympic games that will take place in Paris in 2024. So this is mostly relevant to teachers and educators in the UK and also in Europe, people with an interest in sports, PE teachers in the UK, and the curious and well-informed. So why am I talking about the Olympic Games? Um, I'm not particularly that focused in sports usually, but I, as I am teaching French and my students need to know what's going on in France, I'm going to have to prepare some lesson plans on the Olympic Games because they take place in the capital of France, which is Paris. So just for you and the dates, um, I'm advising you not to book any holidays to Paris at this time because all the hotels will be booked and everything will be overpriced. So if you're not into sports, avoid Paris from the 26th of July, it's a Friday, on the, in 2024, all the way until the 11th of August. And that's a Sunday. But if you like sports, you might still be able to snap one or two tickets and uh, the 26th of July till the the 11th of August are the dates if you want to be able to meet some professional sports players or just to have a bit of uh, the nice, exciting, festive vibes in 
an Olympic city. So let's go back to the origins. You know my passion for history. So the Olympic Games is a very old tradition. Let's not just think it is a modern time event. It is also a Greek, ancient Greek tradition. The Olympic Games are 3,000 years old, more or less. So nothing new there. And this started in the Peloponnese region of ancient Greece. This was organized in Olympia and it took place every four years. So far, we haven't really changed that format. The Olympics take place every four years nowadays. Um, it was called the Olympic Games because it started to happen in Olympia. So quite understandably. Now, we don't know exactly when it started. No one wrote um, a paper on it and we didn't carve any statues with the date of the first Olympic Games, but we have agreed on a date. So the date is that the first one that's cited in written sources, so it doesn't mean that it didn't happen before, it just means that it's the first recorded mention of the Olympic Games, and that was 776 before Christ. Now, we don't know why the Greeks started celebrating games every four years, but it has been such an important event that it became involved and mixed up and embedded in their mythology. Um, so history meeting legend. Now, why is it every four years? We aren't sure, but we know that it became the Olympiad because it was at that location. Now, was it uh, just sports? No. Let's describe it as being akin to a massive barbecue with a lot of games involved. Uh, you know the Greek is a nation of foodies, they love food, their food is wonderful, but they also enjoy a bit of sports. So it was a good occasion to have a sporting event, some social events, and a bit of cultural highlights in, in the ancient Greek calendar. And uh, it was a bit of athletics and a lot of passion and quite a lot of blood as well. So, according to Paul Christensen, who is a professor of ancient Greek at Dartmouth College in the USA, Paul Christensen says, It is hard for us to exaggerate how important the Olympics were for the Greeks. The classic example is that when the Persians invaded Greece in the summer of 480 before Christ, a lot of the Greek city-states agreed that they would put together an allied army to defend themselves. And how? yet, even though they made that decision, I'm not quoting uh, Paul Christensen there, um, even though all the, per, the Greek cities agreed to raise an army, they didn't really manage to do so. Why? Well, Paul Christensen says uh, it was very hard, a hard time getting one army together because so many people wanted to go to the Olympics. So they actually had to delay putting the army together to defend the country against the Persians. Hmm, priorities. 
you wouldn't see that nowadays um, when we get a conscription or when we call for an army to unite against an invader, usually we make sure the army is raised. In ancient Greece, well, I'm sorry, can't come to the army, I've got to go to the Olympics. So the threat of invasion is still very contemporary. Just watch the news if you uh, want to see how it happened still in 2023. But during ancient Greece, it happened quite regularly. Um, so the games took place every four years, but there was also a lot of invasions. All three Greek males were allowed to take part in the Olympic Games. So that was a very inclusive form of celebration. So if you were a peasant, if you were a farmhand, if you were raising cattle, or if you were uh, from the royal family or the heir of a dynasty, you were all welcome to take part in the Olympics. Nowadays, this is very different. Nowadays, you need to have competed in local games, regional games, national games, international games, and then you can pretend to um, try for the Olympics. It's selective. But in ancient Greece, any man could join. Obviously, you're going to tell me that's only 50% of the population. I know. But most of the men were also um, soldiers in case of war. So that was a bit of an issue when you needed to raise an army and then the Olympics were on. Women were not allowed to compete and sadly they were not allowed to attend the events either. Thankfully, this is different now. So there was a loophole to the misogynistic divide and it was that chariot owners were declared the the winners so you didn't have to ride in the chariot you could hire someone to ride for you and then your name as the owner of the chariot would be proclaimed so some women were wealthy enough to have their own chariots and they got so a male rider to ride it for them and then they were declared winners so that was the only way a woman could win the Olympics in ancient Greece. So I'll give you the name of one lady who invested in a chariot. She was called Kiniska, and she was the daughter of a Spartan king. Obviously, you needed to be a royal to be able to afford that sort of chariots, competing chariot in the Olympics. But she did win um, in 396 before Christ because we found victory uh, wreaths with her name on. And she was so good at it, or maybe at hiring very good riders for her chariots, that she won again in 392. So, as I said earlier, it was a big celebration. It was a religious festival and a great excuse to not go to war, but attend the Olympic Games. Everybody would meet up. It would be quite the riot. They would paint the town red. Um, on the middle day of the festival, there was a mass um, slaughter of cows in the honor of God, the god Zeus, king of the Greek gods. And uh, this is why we mention the barbecue uh, atmosphere, because they were slaughtered and eaten afterwards. No waste. 
So for the first 250 years since um, the creation of ancient Greek Olympic Games, they happened in Olympia, which is a northwestern part of the Peloponnese. So imagine the setting, Mediterranean landscape, olive trees, very warm, dry weather. Um, and then afterwards, the game started to last longer. There were five days in the 5th century before Christ, and they started adding um, more sports. So at first, you had running, jumping, throwing um, metal uh, objects. And then af after that, they started adding boxing, wrestling, and chariot racing, very important chariot racing. There were up to 40,000 people watching the chariot race in the stadium at the height of the game's popularity, which was in the second century AD. If you want an idea of how important that was, you should watch Ben-Hur, the Technicolor uh, 1953 movie with Charlton Heston. There's an amazing chariot race scene. Now, let's look at the funny facts, because this is the beauty of history. We know it was only men competing. Now, what not everybody knows is that they were all naked, which is why women were not allowed to even watch the Olympic Games. So all athletes were naked. Um, the men who did boxing or wrestling and pancration, it was a sort of mixed uh, martial art for the Greeks. They were covered in oil to make them extra slippery. Those who didn't follow the rules properly, uh, for instance, if they were doing a false start on the track, they would be punished with corporal punishment. And there was only two rules in the martial arts uh, sequence, the pancration, it was no biting and no gouging, but anything else was allowed. Boxers were asked to not attack the genital area, which seems like quite a good rule, and there was no point system, no time limits, and no weight classification in boxing, so you could be a tiny skinny short man competing next to a mountain of a man. Athletes uh, had to indicate if they could not keep fighting. They had to indicate the surrender by raising both index fingers. Yeah. Um, and very often that was such a shame for them that they would rather die rather than uh, surrender. And boxers uh, could not... Um, be granted a free hit and they had to toss a coin of who decided to go first. So that's the 10 facts about ancient Greek Olympic Games. Now, obviously, after the fall of the Greek Empire and then the fall of the Roman Empire, there was no such thing as stadiums so much. I mean, you can still visit the ruins of stadiums and the arenas in France, in uh, Nîmes and Avignon and Arles, but it kind of went out of fashion. 
So you have to wait until the Victorian age, which was an age of reinvention, and I insist on the re part. You have to wait for um, a gentleman, a French gentleman called Pierre de Coubertin. So Pierre um, is called Charles Pierre, but let's call him Pierre. He was born in 1863 and he died in 1937 and he was a baron. So he was quite wealthy. He was a French educator, a historian, and he loved everything about ancient Greek. So Pierre because he was born in a French aristocratic family, he had access to a lot of knowledge, he was an academic, he um, studied law at the Sciences Po, which is the Paris Institute of Political Studies, and he was a fan of ancient Greek, as I said, so he came up with the idea of resurrecting the Olympic Games. So in... um, In his free time, because he loved ancient Greece so much, he thought it was good to make young men have a motivation to keep fit. He was definitely quite involved in the concept of nation. He wanted France to be a successful country. And at the time, there were lots of conflicts. There was the Franco-Prussian War in... um, And France knew that it had to have a strong soldier reservoir and strong men to be able to fight in the war. So he started thinking about resurrecting the Olympic Games. So in 1882, uh, he was involved in sports. Pierre de Coubertin, he was a referee in a championship of rugby. So he was definitely a historian, but also a sportsman. And he wanted men to be fit and hearty. So in 1888, uh, he founded the Committee for the Propagation of Physical Exercise. Um, And then he slowly promoted the idea of an international competition. And he was very good at promoting it. Many people wrote to him and were interested in his idea. Um, So he got in touch with um, other writers and other educators. And slowly and slowly, he built up a connection with an Englishman called Brooks, who supported him in his uh, attempt to create this. So this advocacy work he's been doing Um, for many years, came to uh, the fore when he started the Games. I'm quite happy he did because it's it's a good thing to resurrect the past. When you're you're a lover of history, you just admire that good ideas can last, can, can be just an idea in a book and then you resurrect them and they bring lots of joy for everybody. So I do admire Pierre de Coubertin's vision. Sadly, I do think the intention was also to promote um, fitness of young men in order to be able to be good soldiers. And um, being a pacifist, I find that quite objectionable. But if you just take the idea of celebrating physical strength for having a healthy mind and a healthy body, then it becomes a little bit more palatable. So I'm going to finish talking about Pierre de Coubertin with this quote from him. 
the whole idea be behind promoting the Olympic Games was, and I quote, l'important dans la vie, ce n'est point le triomphe, mais le combat. L'essentiel, ce n'est pas d'avoir vaincu, mais de s'être bien battu. So here, I'm going to translate his sentence. He is using um, quite a fight war imagery to um, give his life motto. So the translation is, the important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. The essential thing is not to have conquered, but to have fought well. So if you put the, you know, fighting imagery to the side and you focus on the meaning, it's about participating rather than winning. And I think this is the best motto you could add to the idea of the Olympics. So without further ado, we're going to listen to the news. And after that, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of how to organize the Olympic Games in Paris for 2024. So let's listen to the news. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. We have previously reported on the issue of student accommodation, focusing on rising costs and declining quality of places to rent. Shortages of suitable housing have further added to problems for many. This week, the BBC featured reports of protests by some students at what they describe as appalling conditions and extortionate rents at a university-owned block of flats near the University of Northampton. According to the report, residents paid £153 a week for a single ensuite room, but there were complaints of a lack of running water. A university spokesman said it had no record of complaints. However, a spokesperson for the student group said the complaints were repeated year after year. 
The university further said that the rent issue had been resolved to students had paid an additional charge caused by an admin error. This has now been refunded. An apology has also been issued. Staying with higher education, BBC Newsnight reports on the rise of anti-Semitism at UK universities. The Union of Jewish Students said the spike was nothing like anything seen before. The report comes at a time when experts have also warned of rising reports of Islamophobic incidents. Groups who monitor hate crimes in the UK say the conflict is now being played out on university campuses nationwide. The government has provided £43 million to protect interfaith communities and said perpetrators of hate crime would face the full force of the law. The Guardian featured a report that schools in England are using Airbnb-style strategies to raise funds. The article says many are renting out every available space from classrooms to canteens. Renting out spaces for community use is not new, but there has been an increase in the innovative use of spaces. One primary school says it has rented out its light-filled white corridor for photo shoots, whilst another offers a stationary double-decker bus, used as a classroom, to those who might want to make quirky films. Dedicated online platforms are helping schools make the most of their spaces beyond the obvious playing fields and main halls, with the founder of the Sharesy website saying they have even helped schools rent out their car parks for puppy training lessons. The line between education and commercialism is becoming increasingly blurred, as school leaders attempt to close the funding gap especially after a government said it had miscalculated funding announced in July, slashing £370 million from the announced budget. Schools Week feature issues being faced by specialist settings in the North East, as the area, like many others, sees significant increases in the numbers of children and young people with additional needs. This is in addition to an already large backlog of those needing additional support. The piece by Chris Zaraga, Director of Schools North East, describes a system that, by the halfway point of the autumn term, is already at capacity. Specialist and alternative provisions are struggling to cope. While Zaraga accepts that this is a national problem, he points out that it is particularly bad in the North East, as in the 10-year period between 2012 and 2022, there was a 145.43% increase in the number of pupils with an EHCP being suspended from schools. He also argues that the solution cannot simply be more or larger specialist settings, but improve support for pupils within mainstream schools. Zaraga ends with a call for a strategic plan, more resources and expertise from across the sector to be listened to. In Northern Ireland schools, already dealing with action short of strike by teachers from five teaching unions due to issues over pay, could now face further disruption. The BBC reports that there will be strike action on the 16th of November by members of Unison, Unite, the GMB and NIPSA, who, between them, represent thousands of non-teaching staff. These include bus drivers, school catering staff, classroom assistants and cleaners. The strike action is over the failure to reform pay and cuts to the overall education budget. BBC News Northern Ireland has been told that the action will mean that many, if not all, schools will have to close. Finally, a primary school in Birmingham made the local news after it introduced a small farm which includes alpacas, goats and chickens. In spring, it also houses lambs needing to be hand-reared after being rejected by their mothers. 
St Michael's C of E Primary School is in one of Birmingham's most deprived wards. But the farm was introduced to help encourage children and the wider community to engage more broadly. Nearby residents have also created an allotment which is used by the school and the community. Children take part in looking after the plants and animals, although scooping up the poop remains a weekly task for the school's head teacher. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Thank you for listening to the news, dear listener. Now, we were talking about ancient Greece and the invention of the Olympic Games almost 3,000 years ago. And then we talked about its reinvention and modernization by Pierre de Coubertin in the early uh, 20th century and late 19th century. Now, obviously, we have the next Olympic Games coming to Paris in July 2024, August 2024. So what does it mean to be part of the Olympic Games in our modern times? Well, first, we have to say that it is an international event that is followed by millions of people. It is promoted and broadcast on social media and on TV. It involves sportsmen from most countries in the world. Thousands of people move to Paris or to the place where the Olympic Games is happening to be able to see the athletes. It creates lots of economic um, growth when it's in town and there's a lot of changes for the building and the infrastructure in order to get the games going smoothly. So this year we have the Olympic Committee, the Paris Olympic Committee, and it is the president is Tony Estanguet. He's a former sportsman, three-time European champion, three-time world champion, and three-time, someone who's addicted to the number three, Olympic champion. And he was a flag bearer at the Beijing Games for France. He's uh, the first French athlete to have won three gold medals in three different Olympiads. He won in Sydney 2000, Athens 2004, and London in 2012. So he's a very, very successful uh, Olympians. Now, he is um, in charge of the organizing committee for the Olympic and the Paralympics, and he really wanted to work on inclusivity and inclusion. He is quite a good uh, role model for France. Uh, He was born in Pau, which is in the southwest of France, on the 6th of May 1978. He grew up in a family of sports uh, people who liked and enjoyed nature and sports in the Pyrenees. And he himself has three children. Um, So he's interested in also promoting the Olympic Games to the youngest in our society. So he's in charge of the IOC, the um, Olympic uh, Organization Committee, and we have four new sports coming to the Olympic Games this year. There's skateboarding, which is now an official Olympic sport, surfing, sport climbing, and breaking as in dance, street dance type. So this is a great addition, bringing um, interest from a young population, lots of 
young people like skateboarding, surfing, and break breaking. So it's great that we we rejuvenate such an ancient tradition by including more sports um, and breaking and skateboarding are very inclusive because for breaking you just need your own body to become a, a dancer and for skateboarding you only buy you need to buy a skateboard and then you can join in surfing is more costly because you need to have access to the sea and a good surfboard and climbing as well this is a little bit harder because it's hard to find a mountain if you live in a country where there's no mountains. Whereas breaking and skateboarding, you can do it everywhere. I'm not going to quote all the sports that are part of the Olympic Games. Uh, let's just look at the most obscure ones. You're very familiar with athletics and swimming and all that. But let's remind ourselves that golf is part of it. Sailing, shooting. Um, we have archery, which is part of the Olympics, basketball, three-on-three -three basketball. We have taekwondo, trampoline, that's an unusual one. And we have canoe, flat water, canoe slalom, cycling BMX, um, rowing. And finally, we have the original one of... Um, boxing and wrestling that's the one that's been practiced for 3000 years almost since ancient greek greece so there is a lot of um, issues and discussions in the run-up to the olympic games because building an infrastructure that can welcome thousands of tourists thousands of athletes and all the people who need to work on the Olympic Stadium is a very tricky business. So I'm going to go through it because we need to analyze what's at stake when we decide to become an Olympic city and how we can do it in the most inclusive and respectful way for the people who live there. So the most recent um, issue we had was with housing. Paris is a very built-up city. It's a very expensive city to rent and there is not that many places where you can build hotels because everything is already built upon. So we have had a polemic, a big issue with young students because they have um, student accommodation in Paris and the course, which is in charge of student accommodation, had wanted to um, just ask young students to vacate their rooms during the summer because usually students stop in July for their summer holidays and then come back in September or October. So they wanted to use student bedrooms in order to house all the people who work for the Olympics. That is 3,000 um, flats or studio flats and they wanted to get them back for July and August. But student organizations were really angry about this because according to them they were placed in a position where some students do not have anywhere to go to in the summer holidays and they would by definition become homeless and uh, they were also thinking that this is ignoring the fact that 30 percent um, of um, of these uh, student accommodation are still in use because some students have to reset some exams 
and um, they can't just vacate the premises. So there was a big um, discussion with the course and the student unions. Now, the problem is also the way it's been done, because we could have asked students to vacate the, the housing that they use if they didn't need to reset exams. But the problem is that they were facing a, a sort of blackmail, according to the uh, FAGE, um, it's um, Union of Students. They said that they were either uh, having to do um, helping for the Olympics on a voluntary basis or uh, give their flats back for the summer. So they, they had to give their free time or give their housing. This didn't go down well and there's been a lot of um, towing and throwing between agencies. Now, another issue we have uh, with um, the Olympics and how to organize it on a grand scheme is how to do buildings which respect the people who live there already. So the latest polemic is about the surf um, sports because we have a competition of surfing and it's going to be set in Tahiti. Tahiti is a French colony, a former French colony, and it's still a territory that belongs to France in Polynesia. And in Tahiti, there was a tower that was supposed to be built for the surf competition. This tower was supposed to be 14 meters high with a technical um, one floor dedicated to the technical side of it, uh, with aircon for internet servers, with an underwater cable to make sure there was internet service, uh, some toilets for the competitors, and an evacuation system for the toilets. Now, this tower is already built. What is the issue then? The issue is that this tower is three floors high and it needs to be fitted in the sea. They chose a lagoon called Tiahupo in Tahiti for the um, setting, the location of the competition of surf. And ecologists and environmentalists and people who live in the area in the village of Tiahupo are really unhappy about the fact that this tower is going to be erected inside the water in the lagoon because it means that setting up the cables for the internet and um, erecting the tower and making sure it stays erect will damage the um, marine area and damage the ecosystem. Lots of people agree this tower is made of aluminium and it is it could be fitted in a different area with less impact on the coral reef. We all know how important coral reef is in the fight against global warming. It's a very, very fragile environment and spending 4.4 million euros on a tower that might damage the coral reef in the lagoon seems to be quite thoughtless. Um, many people have been saying we need to shelter uh, and protect coral reefs because they shelter 25% of marine biodiversity in our planet and they are at a danger of being uh, too warm, the coral reefs, and to dry out and die. So installing cables, 
toilet and a tower in a lagoon seems very, very um, weak as far as environmental protection is concerned. So this is another example of issues with um, the construction of buildings. Now, there was another one, and it was about the gardens and allotments around Paris. Paris has um, very built-up suburbs, and in Neuf Trois, in Seine-Saint-Denis, we have what a lot of people call La Banlieue, which is an area with high levels of poverty and deprivation. Since the 1910s and 1930s, we had allotments, which were little spaces and little gardens that workers could access in order to grow their own vegetables. Now, to be able to build a huge swimming pool for the Olympics, some of these allotments have been taken away from their owners and are going to be built on. So you can imagine that the locals were really upset about this and there was protest and debates because they were saying, yes, we understand you need to build a swimming pool, um, but you're going to use the land that we need for growing our vegetables and there's the cost of a living crisis. If you take our land, then where are we going to grow our vegetables? Will we be compensated enough? Will we have access to other allotments? And if so, where? And also, if you build a swimming pool, an aquatic center, how much is going to be the ticket to use it once the Olympic Games are finished? Is it going to be a sustainable um, infrastructure that the locals can access? Because we know people in the Seine-Saint-Denis are usually uh, living on minimum wage. And is the price ticket affordable for the locals? So this created a lot of issues and uh, it didn't really come to an agreement. The aquatic center has been built. Now it's about hoping that the locals will get some uh, value for money because it's their taxpayer payers' money that's been invested. And it only makes sense that we uh, support people who live in the area, which is going to be used by um, by the Olympic Games. So this is where we were as far as um, the infrastructure was concerned. Now, all the events will not be happening in Paris. As I said, there will be some competitions in completely different places, even as far as Tahiti. And remember, Tahiti is in Polynesia. So we have to go really far away for some events. Um, the reason is because Paris is already built up and there has some um, competitions that need a certain type of landscape or a certain type of setting, for instance, for the surf or for other um, such as climbing. Now, if we look at inclusivity, um, you can Google it, but if you want to, you can just have a look at the International Olympics Committee Board. This is a panel of more than 15 people, and they are all former sportsmen and women. So if you look at representation, we have, and I'm counting, one, two, three, four, four women compared to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, eleven men. So once more, 
as it's common in institutions, there is a huge imbalance between genders with an underrepresentation of women. Now, if you look at the actual uh, ethnicity of uh, the people in the International Olympics Committee board, there might be one man who is uh, from an Asian back Asian background and one woman who is from a mixed uh, North African background. All the others are very much European and Caucasian. So we do have a bit of an issue about the representation of ethnic minorities. Whereas if you look at athletes, athletes are usually quite representative of um, the world population. So the question comes to mind, if it creates issues about the environment, like this surf competition tower, um, like this swimming pool that is going to be built on allotments. And do we have an Olympic Games, which is really at the center of our efforts to bring inclusivity and respect for the environment? Is sport and are the Olympic Games a unifying force to bring countries and ethnicities together or is it just a commercial endeavor to make money out of sports? Well, it really depends on your mindset. The main issues we can have with the Olympic Games is that it is very expensive. So it costs a lot of money for the country that's hosting. It doesn't really uh, allow people on low income to buy tickets. They are very, very expensive tickets, more and more. And um, we are not sure that sports is not actually reinforcing some inequalities that exist in societies if the infrastructure building affects poorer people and if the people who are actually able to attend the events are usually middle class. Now, we all know the beauty of organizing a competition. You have a unifying community sense. It's people from all over the world. We're all watching the same. We are sharing moments together and it perpetuates myths. Um, the myth of collaboration and, and doing our best and excellence. So there's definitely very interesting aspects about the Olympics. But are we sure that we are not also conveying ideas of inequalities and uh, some myths about people? The Olympic Games is apolitical, and this is Rule 50 of the International Olympic Committee, IOC. It's in its charter, and it states, I'm quoting, no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. So you might think it's a good rule because it pre prevents the Olympic Games from being used to further some, some group's uh, interest. But the problem is sometimes the Olympic Games could be a force for good in change and changing minds. So I'm going to let um, go back in time a little bit to 1968. This was another Olympic game with gold medalist Tommy Smith, bronze medalist John Carlos, 
and um, the silver medalist Peter Norman. So imagine three men. Two men are black, black African, and one man is white. They are all on the um, steps, number one, number two, and number three, and they are receiving their medals. It's a celebration of their excellence as sportsmen. They've just been running the 200 meter race and they won. They are great athletes. Now, the problem is that um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos decided to wear black glove and raise their fist to the sky in an effort to uh, promote their African-American um, civil rights. They were criticized for it. And the sad thing is that Peter Norman, who was from Australia and white, also was on their side because he wore a badge, an OPHR badge, um, in solidarity with the other two athletes with him. And when they left the, the podium, they were booed by the crowd. People criticized them. So it's, it's really important to see that sometimes the Olympics could be an agent for change. And if we ban um, demonstration or political, religious or racial propaganda, you might ban, ban the positive propaganda, the one that pushed the civil rights in America. I'm going to quote what uh, Tommy Smith said. He said, if I win, I am an American not a black man, not a black American. But if I do something bad, then they would say I'm a Negro. We are black and we are proud of being black. Black America will understand what we did tonight. So that was a very important moment. Tommy Smith and John Carlos were celebrating their excellence at sports, but they were celebrating their right to exist in the political and mediatic arena there were men and they had to promote their blackness as well so this is since um that the rule 50 has been um in place now the saddest thing about this story of the 1968 olympic games and the, the black gloved fist in the air was that the man who didn't raise his fist norman <coughs> my apologies, the Australian athlete, he was sympathetic to uh, his competitors' pro protest. But when he went back home in Australia, he was vilified and he became ostracized by conservatives. As a result, his career was affected. He did not get sent to the 1972 Olympic Games, even though he qualified. And people say that it was due to his um, sympathetic views to the 1968 protest. And again, many years later, when Sydney hosted the 2000 Summer Olympics, that athlete who had won a silver medal, Peter Norman, was not invited for the celebration. And even though he played a part in announcing Australian Olympic teams in his role as a sports administrator in Melbourne, he was not invited to the Sydney celebration. Isn't that sad that this poor Peter Norman was 
affected in his career because he was not uh, protesting against Black Americans' politicized um, take on the 1968 podium. I think it's really sad. And the only ones who invited him to Sydney to take part in the Olympic celebrations when they heard that his own country had failed to do so should have been the United States because the United States were the ones who actually didn't allow um, black men to have civil rights until a very recent time. So sadly, Peter Norman is dead now and um, he died in 2006, but his uh, pallbearers at his funeral were um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And I think it is such a beautiful thing they did. He sided with them in 1968 at the Olympics and there were pallbearers of his coffin at his funeral. I don't want to break your heart with that story, but I just want to say that in 2012, the Australian House of Representatives made an apology to Peter Norman and the MP Andrew Lee spoke at Parliament and he said that Peter Norman's gesture in 1968 on the podium was, and I quote, a moment of heroism and humility that advanced international awareness of racial inequality. So he got his recognition posthumously, Peter Norman. And in 2018, the Australian Olympic Committee awarded Peter Norman the AOC Order of Merit for his involvement in the 1968 protest. Obviously, that was posthumously. So I hope his family really enjoyed um, the recognition that Peter Norman should have received um, in his lifetime. So you see, this charter of the International Com Olympic Committee is not allowing a demonstration of political, religious, or racial propaganda. But somehow, we all know now that Tommy Smith, John Carlos and Peter Norman were on the right side of history in 1968 when they broke the rule and they promoted uh, black African-American athletes. So hopefully maybe someone will use against <laughs> the charter but use this great media circus in order to promote inclusion and anti-racism. If you want to know more about the location of that swimming pool that was built in the suburbs of Paris, it was in uh, the Olympic uh, swimming pool at Aubervilliers. And the building started in uh, February 2022 with lots of protests from the people who live in the area. Let's just hope it will be a regeneration of the area, a little bit like what happened in Stratford after the Aquatic Centre was built in London. Now, before we look at um, what we can do in a classroom with our students about the 2024 Olympic Games, let's listen to the news one more time, dear listeners. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co 
forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. We have previously reported on the issue of student accommodation, focusing on rising costs and declining quality of places to rent. Shortages of suitable housing have further added to problems for many. This week, the BBC featured reports of protests by some students at what they describe as appalling conditions and extortionate rents at a university-owned block of flats near the University of Northampton. According to the report, residents paid £153 a week for a single ensuite room, but there were complaints of a lack of running water. A university spokesman said it had no record of complaints. However, a spokesperson for the student group said the complaints were repeated year after year. The university further said that the rent issue had been resolved as students had paid an additional charge caused by an admin error. This has now been refunded. An apology has also been issued. Staying with higher education, BBC Newsnight reports on the rise of anti-Semitism at UK universities. The Union of Jewish Students said the spike was nothing like anything seen before. The report comes at a time when experts have also warned of rising reports of Islamophobic incidents. Groups who monitor hate crimes in the UK say the conflict is now being played out on university campuses nationwide. The government has provided £43 million to protect interfaith communities and said perpetrators of hate crime would face the full force of the law. The Guardian featured a report that schools in England are using Airbnb-style strategies to raise funds. The article says many are renting out every available space from classrooms to canteens. Renting out spaces for community use is not new, but there has been an increase in the innovative use of spaces. One primary school says it has rented out its light-filled white corridor for photo shoots, whilst another offers a stationary double-decker bus, used as a classroom, to those who might want to make quirky films. Dedicated online platforms are helping schools make the most of their spaces beyond the obvious playing fields and main halls, with the founder of the Sharesy website saying they have even helped schools rent out their car parks for puppy training lessons. The line between education and commercialism is becoming increasingly blurred, as school leaders attempt to close the funding gap especially after a government said 
It had miscalculated funding announced in July, slashing £370 million from the announced budget. Schools Week feature issues being faced by specialist settings in the North East, as the area, like many others, sees significant increases in the numbers of children and young people with additional needs. This is in addition to an already large backlog of those needing additional support. The piece by Chris Zaraga, Director of Schools North East, describes a system that, by the halfway point of the autumn term, is already at capacity. Specialist and alternative provisions are struggling to cope. While Saraga accepts that this is a national problem, he points out that it is particularly bad in the North East, as in the 10-year period between 2012 and 2022, there was a 145.43% increase in the number of pupils with an EHCP being suspended from schools. He also argues that the solution cannot simply be more or larger specialist settings, but improve support for pupils within mainstream schools. Zaraga ends with a call for a strategic plan, more resources and expertise from across the sector to be listened to. In Northern Ireland schools, already dealing with action short of strike by teachers from five teaching unions due to issues over pay, could now face further disruption. The BBC reports that there will be strike action on the 16th of November by members of Unison, Unite, the GMB and NIPSA, who, between them, represent thousands of non-teaching staff. These include bus drivers, school catering staff, classroom assistants and cleaners. The strike action is over the failure to reform pay and cuts to the overall education budget. BBC News Northern Ireland has been told that the action will mean that many, if not all, schools will have to close. Finally, a primary school in Birmingham made the local news after it introduced a small farm which includes alpacas, goats and chickens. In spring, it also houses lambs needing to be hand-reared after being rejected by their mothers. St Michael's C of E Primary School is in one of Birmingham's most deprived wards. But the farm was introduced to help encourage children and the wider community to engage more broadly. Nearby residents have also created an allotment which is used by the school and the community. Children take part in looking after the plants and animals, although scooping up the poop remains a weekly task for the school's head teacher. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Thank you for listening to the news, dear listeners. So, as we know the story of ancient Greek Olympiads, and we have talked about Pierre de Coubertin rejuvenating the uh, Olympic Games, Finally, we need to think about how to introduce a subject in our classrooms to prepare for the Paris 2024 Games. Well, it's easy to prepare resources. You can talk about ancient Greece using a text. Uh, whether you use AI or write it yourself, you can give it in the languages that you teach. If it's French, it's French. If it's Spanish, it's Spanish. You can choose any other historical resource to mention Pierre de Coubertin. You can think about uh, PSHCE, um, the ethics of a protest in sports with the 1968 um, Black African American protest during the 200 meters race. You can do a ping pong reading task 
with any um, extract from an article about the Olympics. You can ask your students to do a homework task, finding 10 facts about ancient Greece Olympiads, then 10 facts about Pierre de Coubertin, finding 10 facts about the building infrastructure of the Olympic Games in Paris. You can give them picture description. You can also ask them to prepare a essay on the sports person who's going to compete in the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. You can do so much using typical uh, two truths and a lie or um, who am I um, games, sports charade, etc. So you can adapt it to your students, whether they're in kindergarten all the way to A-levels. Plenty of resources. On the uh, Olympic Committee website, you have pictograms of the Olympic Games. You can just take a screen pic of it, hide the names of each sport and ask your students to match the sport with the pictogram for arts, for instance. I did it in French. I put the names of all the competitions in French la plongée, le tennis de table, le surf, etc. And then I ask my students to match it to the pictogram. So that's an easy resource to create. You can also choose positive role models. And in the Olympics this year, there's a lot of young girls competing in the breaking, dance breaking uh, competition, the surf and the skateboard competition. So if you want to find role models for teenage girls, I've done a few and selected a few. What makes a good role model? Well, it needs to be someone who's motivated, someone who's living a clean, healthy lifestyle, uh, someone who's got an ability to inspire others with a clear set of values, someone committed, committed to their community, someone who's accepting of others, and someone who's got resilience and an ability to overcome obstacles. So I've found for you, uh, Maria Behi, B-A-H-E. She's an Olympic um, boxer. She's only 16 years old and she's a Navajo boxer. So it means she's a native indigenous from the United States. What a role model, 16 and already competing in France. So Maria Behi. Now there is also Raisa Leal. She's a 15-year-old Brazilian skateboarder. She's got the most beautiful smile. Please check out Raisa Leal for skateboarding, another great teenage role model for your students. And finally, B-Girl India, that's her name for breakdancing. So she's a dancer and she's competing for the Netherlands. As her name suggests, B-Girl India is from the Netherlands, but she's got Indian roots and Indian ancestry. So I gave you three positive role models for young teenage girls. Please check them out. Maria Bahi, Navajo boxer, 16-year-old. Raisa Leal, 15-year-old Brazilian skateboarder. And B-Girl India for breakdancing. These are great ladies we need to follow. Um, the IOC has nominated Brisbane, Australia for the next Olympic Games in 2000, uh, no, not the next, for the 2032. So we've got plenty of time to prepare for that game. And as you know, sadly, um, there was a referendum about um, 
acknowledging the Aborigines in the constitution in Australia, and the referendum gave a negative. I don't know what you think about referendums, but I don't think they're usually giving us a positive um, answer. Anywho, the IOC nominated Brisbane, Australia for the Olympic Games of 2032, and Ruby Wharton said, this is an opportunity for the nation to truly decolonize and decentralize colonial values within an international sporting arena. Obviously, after the result of the Australian referenda, referendum, sorry, we can see that this is even more accurate and needed. We need to decolonize and decentralize. So I'm hoping that in by then, in 2032, we'll, we'll have make progress. Uh, watch this space. We are always for decolonizing in this um, place. So as a result, we are getting to the end of our uh, live show. I hope you enjoyed this refresher on the origins of the Olympic Games. I hope it gave you plenty of ideas what to use in your classroom, talking about Pierre de Coubertin, talking about the um, difficult aspect of politics and games and, and sports. Is it a good idea to use the Olympic Games as a, as a way to broadcast political agenda? Is it something we should allow? This is a very important questions, and it's also very interesting history, um, a very interesting angle to look back on the Olympic Games. I'm gonna just let you listen to our announcers before um, finishing this uh, live show. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. 
Thank you, dear listeners, for listening to our announcers. So today we talked about the origin of the Olympic Games with ancient Greece. We talked about uh, Pierre de Coubertin, who made it fashionable again and started the International Olympic Committee. We have mentioned the difficulties of organizing games, the infrastructures, the people who have their uh, local area transformed, the people who don't like it, the people who raise the issue of the environmental cost of building all these infrastructures for a limited time. We have that example of the Tahiti uh, site where a tower is supposed to be erected in the lagoon. We have the example of students in their student accommodation were asked to vacate their student rooms over the summer, even though they need it. Um, lots of issues, lots of polemics. What we need to think about is that Olympic Games are a celebration of the world of sports, and it should be inclusive, it should be celebrating differences and coming together. I mentioned three role models you might want to promote with your students. The two, uh, the three young girls um, from the breakdancing community and the um, boxing community, as well as surfing and skateboarding. Please don't hesitate to introduce the topic to your students. You've got a few months um, to prepare. The Olympic Games will happen in July and August this summer. And I hope you enjoyed this show. I wish you a wonderful evening and I'm looking forward to spending time with you next Sunday. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.